0: I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taya Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers, Books, and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Robin Blore about his latest book, Gurdjieff's Hydrogens, Volume 1, The Ray of Creation. About this book, he writes, Gurdjieff clearly wanted his pupils to try to understand objective science. He left two accounts of it. One adorns the pages of In Search of the Miraculous, the other merges itself into the text of Beelzebub's tales to his grandson. He describes its study as a necessity, one of the five Oblegonian strivings. And yet, most books about the work steer clear of the topic. This book moves in the opposite direction. Robin was born in 1951 in Liverpool, UK. He obtained a B.S. in mathematics at Nottingham University and took up a career in the computer industry, initially writing software. From 1989 onwards, he became a technology analyst and consultant. He has thus been a writer of a kind ever since. In 2002, he was awarded an honorary Ph.D. in computer science by Wolfhampton University in the U.K. He currently resides in and works from Austin, Texas, in the U.S., in 1988, after drifting through several work groups, Bohr met and became a pupil of Rena Hand's. Rena was a one-time associate of J. G. Bennett, a student of Peter Ospinski's, and later a pupil of George Gurdjieff. Following Gurdjieff's death, she remained part of the J. G. Bennett group for a while. Subsequently, she formed groups both in London, where she lived, and in Bradford in the north of England, initially in conjunction with Madame Nott. She was an accomplished movements teacher and an inspirational group leader. She died in 1994 and is buried next to Jane Heap in a cemetery in North London. Robin leads a group, the Austin Gurdjieff Society in Austin, Texas. Robin is the author also of To Fathom the Gist, Volumes 1-3, to which demonstrates a method of reading and comprehending the contents of G.I. Gurdjieff's masterwork, All and Everything, but Alzebub's Tales to His Grandson. Robin Bohr, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, we have a big topic to get into, which is a discussion of your latest volume, the latest book, Gurdjieff's Hydrogens, Volume One The Ray of Creation. So I wanted to begin by asking you to go back to the inspiration uh, that led you to write this book and also to discuss what need you think the book serves.
2: Okay. Well, the the genesis of this book is about six years ago, I think, 2014, maybe seven years ago, nearly seven years ago. I was at um, a summer week um, at the k group that I attend in England uh, at, in summertime occasionally um, and there was a study group on, on the step diagram from uh, In Search of the Miraculous and um, one of the things that I was given to try to in one way or another contribute to the Um, the study that we were doing was uh, uh, a set of notes of John G. Bennett's on the step diagram. Hmm. And there was almost not a single sentence of any value whatsoever in that. And that made me think that, you know, this particular diagram isn't something that um, anyone understood particularly well. Maybe Spensky did. And... um, So I thought that I would present um, a set of ideas I'd have at at the All and Everything conference a year later. And I did that. And I I realised that of the people there and also the people that I've met in the work, very few people actually have much understanding whatsoever of the diagrams and the objective science behind them that in, uh, comes from in search miraculous and it's even worse when you consider the ideas in expressed in Beelzebub's tales where Gurdjieff describes objective science in quite different terms so my experience in the work and we're talking over decades was that nobody understood much at all about this you know the ideas, the psychological ideas, of the work, and a lot, of, a lot of people had a deep understanding of. But this, not much. So I started writing, and it it, it it's it was very pains uh, painstaking approach because I had to go down to a, a, a fairly low level and and cross match it with data from conventional science to get to. What I realised I'd have to achieve, um, in order to produce a book on this, which was, you know, which would go into greater depth than Peter Spensky went into, really. And um, it it wasn't until COVID, really, the tail end of COVID, November last year, that I was able to devote almost full time to producing the book, and it still took four months. So. There's a lot of effort in that. Got it. So, um,
1: since you've already uh, brought the subject up and many of our listeners will not be familiar with the distinction between uh, what you're calling contemporary science and objective science, maybe you could uh, start there.
2: Yeah, I can do that. The the important thing to understand is, is... the scenario of of those two things uh, the scenario of contemporary science is based upon a set of agreed principles um, a large number of people investigate the nature of reality or some portion of the nature of reality generate theories or build on top of theories that have gone before and create a kind of edifice and, and we refer to that as science It it follows fashion, Uh, at those points in time, parts of the edifice collapse and they're rebuilt in some way or other and so on and so forth. Um, It's really uh, a consensus view of reality that is largely accepted by the culture of the time. Uh, And you would find, actually, because when we talk about the culture of the time, we're really talking about Europe and North America mainly, and You know, you you won't find um, that much confidence in science in the Middle East um, and less in the way that um, Western science has constructed things in China. It's different, you know, from culture to culture. It's not identical worldwide. But that's contemporary science. Objective science is a set of ideas given as fragments that are or should be regarded as immutable, and that you, in one way or another, are trying to discover the truth of, or whether they're true or not, basically. Uh, but objective science, the theories of objective science never change. And all that I've done in this book is to try to explain some of it. That's all. So there, there is no... Point to which contemporary science and objective science um, meet at all, because objective—you know—contemporary science is a kind of dem- democratic approach to science, um, where only supposedly learned people vote. You know, whereas uh, objective science uh, is uh, is was presented as coming from higher mind, and. um you don't get involved in it and start to offer up your own theories. You get involved in it and discover the truth of it or otherwise.
0: So, so in one of the source material that you reference in the book is, uh, Rodney Collins book, uh, uh, theory of celestial influences. And Rodney Collins was a student, I guess, primarily of Ospinski. And, uh, this book represented something of a compilation or a synthesis of the ideas that Ospinsky's group had been working with. But in his introduction, I noticed something very interesting that speaks to this question. He, he distinguished ways of knowing between inferential and deductive. So he says that inferential, basically, you make a bunch of observations from those observations, which can be very painstaking, and you try to... Uh, pull out or induce a law and as you said earlier you build upon that those laws and and um, in a way you know this is uh, how an edifice is built and sometimes it's restructured when new observations come in but essentially this is the way of science and the contemporary science i should say and it's it requires a kind of a logical thinking and he contrasted that with deduction where you start with a set of principles and then you look at the logical consequences and try to match those with uh what you find in your experience and he used that he said that these are typical of religion but also mathematics because mathematics basically starts with axioms, and then the work is to deduce and He made the argument which is interesting to me that in this work that his book and and very much so the case with your book that you have to do both because uh there there's um and and you're very honest about this in the book there's a lot there's there's basic principles which we can make deductions about there's a lot of phenomena that we have to really absorb or to be present to and and so there's a little bit of uh there's certainly largely the deductive approach, but there's also some level of inference as you try to see how does this how does the data from contemporary science map onto this framework. Would you agree with that assessment?
2: Yeah, I'd say that was almost precisely correct in in, in terms of what I was doing. It's um the the thing to mention about Rodney Collins' book is that Really, if you kind of examine its structure, you, you very quickly realise that he has actually gone through many of the things that were in Search in Oraculus. but he's not tried to use the terminology of the work. He's just yeah put it into plain, uh, as, as close as possible as you could say to the scientific language of the day, and produced a book on that basis, a very creditable thing to have done, and actually very difficult...
0: Yeah, and in fact, he does mention in the, that same introduction that um, he's using the scientific language in part because that's the that's what's popular these days. He says, if I was writing in the Middle Ages, it'd be a religious language, and uh, it might have been more poetic if he was writing in the 19th century. So, yeah. So getting so the, what's different then about your book, and it's and it's interesting to uh, to contrast that in the way that you said with Collins is that you start with the the ideas of the work, you start with the diagrams. You're very you cleave very closely to that original source material, and so it seems like to a large extent your target audience are people in the work who have been exposed to that material but don't know what to do with it. Is it would that be fair? yeah I think that's
2: fair I mean the I suspect because of what I'm attempting to do I I suspect it's going to go further than that but that's the beginning uh, of what I'm trying to achieve is that people in the work who are strongly interested in these ideas and have never been able to get particularly far with them have a, a set of information that may take them further that was the beginning of what I was doing but I think that, you know, while I was doing this, the um, the success of a Sapphire project made it clear that that the cosmology that currently dominates all that all of that Big Bang stuff is going to collapse. And um, when I realised that that was going to collapse, I thought I can maybe squeeze this book into that space. Mm. By you know, making it possible for people to contemplate what you would call um a cosmology with a spiritual edge. You know, so it it has that function if the opportunity arises and we'll see about that. But um I think it will arise because you know astrophysics is in a terrible, terrible state. The whole you know the whole edifice is collapsing right now.
0: I should just mention, when you mentioned the Sapphire project, and we can get into that in more detail later, that's a body of experimental research that's uh, doing experimentation, validation of what's called the electric universe or the electric sun hypothesis, which in contrast to modern cosmology, scientific cosmology today by convention tends to describe structure in terms of gravity whereas the electric universe hypothesis uh, looks at the very real and observed presence of plasmas or electrically charged material throughout the universe and posits that that's the primary driver for a lot of the phenomenology we see in cosmology. Yeah. So to start with, and since many of our listeners aren't going to be um, as steeped in some of the traditional fourth-way uh, modeling and things like that, uh, you begin with this notion of the ray of creation and the notion of the octave.
1: Actually, okay. I, I just have to jump in here because you keep saying that he begins with, the Robin's book begins with that. Actually, it begins with a takedown of contemporary oh, silence. It's true. Let's,
0: let's, you let's want to be start accurate there? Here. You want to start there? No.
1: Well, no, I I, I mean, uh, I'm actually happy to, uh, if... um, Well,
0: actually, that's fair. Before we get into the ideas, I think it actually would be, uh, uh, because there's a strong argument you make that is provocative, but I think quite fair, about how the edifice of contemporary science isn't quite as... um, uh, uh, Robust? Yeah, robust as uh, science news might imply well i have no idea what they
2: imply to be honest. I have no idea if there 's a set of principles behind the various media that um, publicize things that happen in the scientific sphere um, the The reality is that that there are very very um, very difficult problems with um, science 's approach to things that make you wonder whether they can particularly claim. Um, the truth of everything um, it, it's particularly vulnerable in the area of astrophysics because it's to cut a long story short it's the bucket experiment and the particle experiment or the thought experiments created by Newton um, one easy to explain but I'll not explain the bucket experiment other than to outline it because that takes some thinking about But if a particle is moving in a given direction, so we're just talking about a particle, it's moving in a straight line in a given direction. If the universe disappears, is it still moving? That's the question. Right? So if every other thing in the universe disappears, is the particle still moving? Newton answered that question by saying yes. And Einstein answers that question by saying yes an objective science answers that question
0: by saying no right and to be um, and so does so does some, some elements in science like i think Mach's, um, uh mock the uh, i think he's a yes. german uh, cosmologist was one who brought that to the fore as a problem in science right
2: yeah, and and yeah, so there are elements of science that actually try to, um, but they're of course niche at the moment, they may not remain niche, but they are of course niche. The bucket experiment is the same thing really, except you imagine a bucket that's got water in it that's spinning um, and the water obviously creates a kind can of meniscus um, at the surface and the question is remove the rest of the universe and a, is it still spinning, and B, what's happening to the water? And, you know, and again, the same answer um, uh, comes from the, the Machians, if you like, and from objective science. No, it, it's not spinning, and, you know, the water would be flat. Um, that's um, a fundamental departure. No, it needs to be understood that that's a fundamental departure in the sense that if you part ways at that, <coughs> then everything that science has built on top of that, you are no longer in the same game and you're no longer able to discuss anything. Because you're, you're the various cause and effects that you acknowledge that come from the rest of the universe that science doesn't acknowledge. Um, and that's an astrophysics um, situation. But there's a lot more, you know, that one can holes in science um, you know the, the the Einstein I think famously said in so far as mathematics um, uh, re- reflects reality right? It, it's not true in so far as it doesn't reflect reality I've, I've got the quote wrong actually, I can't remember it, but anyway basically mathematics is a model and reality is not a model it's what we experience so the you have that as a problem that really everything you're dealing with in science is a model you have the idea of repeatability as a problem, you've got it in the big way with the Large Hadron Collider because Every experiment done in that is unrepeatable because there is no alternative place to do the experiment. So you've got lots of um, incidences of that kind of thing where science is maintaining something to be so, or the media around science maintains it to be so. But it's not been proven by their own criteria. Um, And then you've got the problem of the closed system because science, in various ways, in order to have an experiment, you have to have a closed system. In other words, no interference from outside the area of the experiment. But a closed system isn't actually achievable in this universe. The only closed system in this universe is the universe. Um, Everything else is, to some extent, open. So, things like the... um, the... Uh, third law of thermodynamics the um, decay of things uh, apply to a closed system but there are no closed systems you know and it's not possible to create a closed system so that you know there are these um, things that philosophically you can talk about as problems you've also got the problems of um, statistics because Uh, unless you're in a situation of mathematics, pretty much all of science is statistical, well, you've got a really big problem with the fact that correlation and causation are not the same thing. Um, Right. You know, and and that breaks up um, uh, an awful lot of, let's say, the confidence that people might have. You know, correlation can be causation. It's not that it doesn't happen. It's just that you can't really have That much confidence in it. And there's lots more than that, but you know, that's in the book. You know, Um, I try to be exhaustive in um, providing the background to the way science really works.
0: Well, one of the things I appreciate about your uh, critique is a reminder that science, by its very structure, is always doing the best it can with the data that it has available and the problem with the fashion of science and, and the, what today is the popular media and the popular culture of science is that, that reality is uh, often lost and because of some of the dramatic successes of science, people just assume that a scientific theory or statement is the truth of the way things are. And so there's assertions that something that might be a theoretical construct, be it a a super string or a black hole, is treated as fact by the way that it's communicated to people outside of the the deep scientific world. And even within the scientific world, it's a fact insofar as if you don't give allegiance to it, you typically don't get uh, grants or uh, promoted.
2: Yeah, that's a, that, the structural thing um, uh, in in terms of the fashionable science of the day that everybody has to pay lip service to is just kind of unfortunate. We don't have uh, science got to the situation where the experimental apparatus was, was really cost a lot of money, so it was necessary in one way to depend upon grants, and that led to a kind of inflexible establishment. But that'll, that'll collapse. I think something else that is worth pointing out is that most of what people are likely to attribute to the um, successes of science are actually successes of engineering. They're not mm-hmm. successes of science at all. You know, the idea that science scientists comes up with a theory... The theory turns out to be predictive and then proves useful in doing various, um, carrying out various kinds of things. Um, maybe um, a, a theory of aerodynamics would be really good for building aer- aer- airplanes. And I think it took something like 60 years after the airplane first took off before a theory of aerodynamics was applicable to aeroplanes and you look at it the same way with, you know, suspension bridges yeah, the first suspension bridge was built you know, probably a hundred years before they had the mathematics of suspension and physics of suspension bridges worked out, and it's nearly always the way, it's the engineers that did it, you know it's engineers that put the Mars um, rover onto Mars you know um, the the only science I think that um, was necessary for that was the um, gravitational stuff that Newton did 400 years before I think the rest of it is all an achievement of engineering and one needs to understand that because this means in some way or other that, that you know those are remarkable things for men to have done and obviously remarkable engineers were involved in doing it but it doesn't make any astronomers' theory as to what is happening on Mars before we ever got there to take a look at it particularly impressive because in actual fact they got it really all wrong you know. and that's true with pretty much every planet you know. the astronomers are supposed to the scientists are supposed to know and be able to deduce what would be present in various places well, they just got it wrong
0: yeah. Well, and and it's interesting as I think about you know the, the the fundamental flaw of contemporary science is getting ahead of itself in terms of believing its theories. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if there's a a, a similar critique of pract- practitioners of objective science that you were pointing to earlier, in which if something if a principle is revealed in some way. Uh, and it's your job to then apply it. Uh, a maybe a fault mode for a practitioner of objective science is to get lazy and just accept that they they have the principles, so they don't need to do the work, if you will.
2: Yeah, that would that would be a mistake. The 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 principles of objective science are not provided for people to believe you know, it is a principle of objective science that you aren't supposed to believe anything it says. Um, And Gurdjieff um, stated that several times, you know, this isn't for something to believe. Um, And it would be a mistake. But, I mean, I think that that is also a mistake made by people in contemporary science. I think it's a mistake everyone makes, is that they believe in authority rather than in some way or other finding out for themselves well if you believe in authority it almost doesn't matter what the authority says you know I mean the reason that some people choose one authority over another is normally peer group pressure it's not normally because they've done a um, a detailed intellectual analysis of what one authority says against another because most people you know they don't have a skill for that well um of course the, um
1: you you're exactly right and i mean the thought that occurs to me is that it's very it would be very hard for for any individual given individual to verify um, ev- that everything they're doing at a given moment is congruent either with theories of contemporary science or with um um Descriptions of the universe um, congruent with uh, objective science is, it, is that I may not be stating that quite as precisely as I'd like there, but um, but I, I'd like your comment on that.
2: Um, what well, I mean this this is really comes from the Gurdjieff work more than anything else. It's the truth is that most people at any given point in time are behaving to completely mechanical Mm -hmm. Um, because behavior is mechanical they aren't aware of anything you know aware being aware of what objective science says or something you people not keeping that in mind they can't even keep themselves in mind (laughs) and it's a harsh thing to say but it's true you know so at the point in time when people are able to observe you're not going to Be able to observe the ray of creation in, um, you know, writ large, the whole of the universe all at once, that's asking a bit much of people that might be able to observe something about themselves. Right. And, you know, a fundamental principle of objective science is as above, so below, or if there's a ray of creation out there, there's one inside you. And you might be able to, in one way or another, get at pieces of that while you're self-aware. But it's not a, it's uh, not
1: a simple thing to do. It, or at least uh, it's a rare thing, perhaps, is a better way to put it.
2: Yeah, but we need narratives. I mean, it, it, it's it's worth understanding that in one way or another, modern science creates a narrative. And that narrative is their explanation of the universe and their explanation of us. You know. And objective science creates a narrative, and it's a different narrative. But it well, is a narrative. It's important for people to have a narrative, otherwise they're normally, if you like, intellectually adrift.
1: Yeah, when I was in uh, grad school in the '90s, uh, one of the mo- more important uh, sources I was exposed to was 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 a woman who, who in fact made precisely this point about what you're calling contemporary science that it's that it's all narrative based essentially people are telling a story, and that and and that seems to be the way our our minds can um, encompass. Uh, sets of data, um, or facts, or lived experiences we as as we uh, as we go through life. So so no disagreement there whatsoever.
0: Well, I, I want to. I mean, it is it is important to emphasize because you said you know this is how we uh, deal with uh, sets of data, but. The narratives go well beyond the data. I mean, the narrative of contemporary science has nothing to do with the data. There is no data. There is no experiment that says that uh, the world, the universe is uh, dead and well, material.
1: Well, of course, but it's in the frame. It's in the framework. Yeah, uh, it, it, of that narrative, that the data is placed yes. mentally. Yes, for sure. And then, and then, meaning is ascri- is ascribed to that.
2: Yeah, the, the um, it's, I remembered what Einstein said. It, it, um, insofar as mathematics is precise, it doesn't correspond with reality. insofar so far as it corresponds with reality, it's not precise. You know, and that's an interesting thing. Um, we have the phenomenon uh, of a black hole. And I can call it phenomenon because it's part of the science narrative, it's a big part of astrophysics narrative, right? And it's complete fiction. You know, um, Einstein himself didn't think that the equation, because it comes from the time dilation equation in in the vicinity of um, uh, large masses, he said he didn't think that it led to um, a singularity and what you're doing with something like that is you're taking an equation that works within a given area within a given framework and you're saying, well, in which case it works for the whole universe you know, and that's just never the case you know, there isn't anything that you can say you know, that this precise thing because it's happening here therefore applies to the hell of the universe you really don't know, for instance we do not know that the speed of light is actually a constant right because we're only in this part of the universe um, and it may well be that it's the case and the evidence for that may in fact be strong depending upon what you look at, but you know it still isn't that particularly you know, you shouldn't have that much confidence in it
1: so 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 to frame what you're doing in, in your book from this from this perspective, you're creating, or not creating, but uh, you're elaborating in a uh, more straightforward manner, perhaps than Gurdjieff did, a, a narrative understanding of of the universe in a particular way um, that has cosmological implications um but i'm um i'm remembering that that we have a friend uh, a Buddha, a, for, a former buddhist friend who, who uh spent a lot of time in buddhism and his and his uh observation or assertion that he made was that buddhist, buddhism in general has a weak cosmological um um what's the word he used i forget commitment in other words um there's the famous story of of the Buddha, supposedly in one of the one of the uh, sutras or suttas, uh, saying, If you're wounded with an arrow, the thing that's important is to figure out how to remove the arrowhead from your body and heal the body, and not so much before you do that, work out the trajectory of of um, from where the arrow was shot, who shot you, and that sort of thing, and and so I'm wondering. Um, uh, I haven't thought about this until until just this moment. Um, how this would tie in or not tie in with with the project that you engage in in, in the book? Is it is it important to have a cosmological commitment at different levels? Of uh, elaboration or not?
2: Well, I mean, if we go at the Buddhist thing, the, the it would depend upon what you regard as a cosmo- as a cosmology. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's no doubt whatsoever that what Gurdjieff provided was a cosmology. Right. I mean, it, and you know, uh, self consistent cosmology. If you look at, for instance, Tibetan Buddhism, they have created. Uh, a fairly large um in sense of detailed structure around the event of death. Mm-hmm. I would say that was cosmological. I would say that some of the things that one finds in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, depending on how you look at it, um, is cosmology, you know, the 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 idea that when you die there's a bright white light that in some way is very painful you and you move away from the light you know cosmologically that's just a higher level of energy I, I i yeah no i i completely
1: agree that that the elaborations of tibetan buddhism have that have that feature i think my, my friend who is uh, in a in a korean zen tradition um, was commenting on that skein of, uh, of buddhist thought in east asia but um um but you're right that that um even even the world view um that we read and I, you know I at, at one point I read through a lot of the English translations of the Buddhist suttas and sutras and sutras and and there's a worldview there. There's absolutely a cosmology there, and it's it's essentially it's, uh, to a to a modern reader it feels derived in many ways from a Hindu uh, cosmology because the deities are there. They don't appear very often, and they are and their uh, force or power is differently construed. But there is a there is a cosmology, but the, but I guess I guess my question is. Um, you know, putting aside an example like Tibetan Buddhism, um, and maybe considering uh, some some uh, relatively unelaborated cosmologies that you find in some uh, some cultures prior to European contact, I'm wondering if if you think it matters the elaboration. Of of a cosmological narrative um, for how for how we uh, um, evolve well how we evolve and how we how we uh, uh, address life moment by moment.
2: I mean, I think I I think the um, the evidence would suggest that a narrative of some kind always emerges. I mean, I can't think of any. Anthropological work uh, someone's gone in. No, and, uh, no argument there.
1: No argument there.
2: Have a narrative. So there's a question of a narrative. The narrative has to be um, suitable for the context in which it's introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, it's necessary since the since science became the dominant, I'd say, the dominant force in terms of what people believe to be true. Um, it's necessary for them to have a narrative that, in one way or another, fulfills their stated area of um, uh, of understanding, which is the whole universe.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the cosmology that we're dealing with from objective science, it's exactly the same, it's the whole universe.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You, know, you, you could have a cosmology like many of the North American uh, Indian, you know, First Nation, um... Stories which really only uh, are a narrative about the earth and how we came to be on this earth. Right. Uh, so you you can pare it down, but you know, I think that it's necessary from the point of view of something that would call itself objective science for for it to point itself at all and everything.
0: So, in a, in a way, then the narrative there's certain structures of the narrative that are important in terms of our relationship to our lives in our universe that have important consequences. So, for instance, a narrative, a shamanic narrative, or the, the narrative that you depict in Gurdjieff's Hydrogens, gives me a sense of a universe that's alive and participatory, that where intelligence and life runs at all levels and the narrative of contemporary science although that's slightly changing now but the the narrative for a large part of the of the late 19th and most of the 20th century was a narrative of a dead universe that was completely mechanistic and our existence and our life was the um you know the, the the pinnacle of a rather accidental process of evolution. And that has consequences for how I look at my possibilities as a being.
2: Yeah, it has consequences.
0: It's, so, it's
2: you know, the, the fundamental question, I mean, you could say that contemporary science... Um, uh, is interested only in uh, anatomizing the dead body of the universe. And you could say that objective science is about a living universe and the life at every level. And, and when it occurred to me when you were talking about Hindu narratives, when you talk about gods, gods and forces are the same thing for people at lower levels. There's no difference. There isn't a distinguishable uh, difference in terms of the way you would look at them at least not um, from the perspective of objective science you know the law of seven which applies from the very highest level down you could call it a god if you wanted to Mm.
1: So, I'm trying to imagine how you'd uh, visualize yeah. that one.
0: <laughs> well, so so then maybe maybe since we've sort of started the topic of this living universe, um, maybe now would be a good time to jump into one of the the principal and introductory uh, notes you sound as you begin to unpack objective science is the ray of creation, and I'd like to uh, just. In, in, you know, in terms that someone listening to this may not be as steeped in the Gurdjieff work, maybe you could offer a description of what is the ray of creation, what does what that image intend to convey to us?
2: Yeah, the... the I mean, it's called the ray of creation because and it can be viewed as a ray and basically is the consequence of creation. That's the idea... So you, um, this isn't part of well, this isn't part of the book, and this isn't really part of objective sense. But certainly in the um, uh, Jewish tradition, the act of creation is the separation that God separates Himself from Himself and the universe is created between the two points of separation. That's God as the endlessness, and God, as objective science would say, as the holy firm. So the, the idea was that at some point in time, whatever existed wasn't what exists now, and there is a supreme intelligence, and it separated itself from itself. And between that, it created a tension within which the universe formed. So that's, and that, that's the hazard.
1: Right, and, and, that, and, and that ray of creation is, is the description of that tension, essentially.
2: Yeah, so the, the, the lowest point of the ray of creation is at the center, the precise center of moons, planets, and suns. So you can say that, if you like, there's a particle of the Supreme Intelligence in precisely those places, Uh, and therefore that's what you would call everything. Those are the points that are, um, in, in one way or another, that there are a vast number of these points throughout the whole universe, just a vast number, many planets around, many suns in many, many galaxies. So that's the that's the low point, and the high point is our endlessness. So our endlessness is all, right? That's the God at the high point is everything. So you could describe the universe as being created between all and everything. The everything being God at the low point at the um at the holy firm. And then from that, you know, the the absolute occupies the whole of the universe and we can call that the sum absolute the whole of the universe is according to the evidence of the Hubble um, telescope consists of vast numbers of galaxies the estimate currently is that 2 trillion galaxies so the the sun absolute the, the abode of the absolute um, is broken up into two Trillions of galaxies, and each of those galaxies consists of vast numbers of suns. Um, the estimate for our solar, uh, for our galaxy, at the moment, is 400 billion suns. So, you know, that's the next level below the galaxy. In the ray of creation, is the level of the sun. Around the suns, there are a family of planets. So, below that, that next level. In the Ray of Creation is the family of planets. And then there's our planet as part of that family is the next lower level. And below that level is the moon, which is a child of our planet. And below that, we have the Holy Firm. So that's what the Ray of Creation is painting. is painting a picture of one descending into a vast number of things, the centre of which all of those things... Is also the absolute. So,
0: in a way, the serpent eats its tail. So, so there are a couple of questions I have um, just to frame this, because there's so much of the language is as above, so below. So, the the reality at one scale is replicated at a lower scale. So, is it the case that wholly firm exists only in the centers of moons and planets and suns or uh, what, what? what is the relationship of the holy firm and say the center of an atom is, does that have any meaning or is that a different uh, construct
2: well it will be atomic um, it, it, it's um, so it, it's difficult to couch it in terms of an atom because what objective science defines as an atom is not the same yeah. as what uh, as what um, our science defines as an atom so those are separate things however an atom of the absolute is at the centre of these things, these moons, these planets, these suns there's an atom there and atoms of the absolute as his endlessness the most rare. so that's the most dense thing Mm-hmm. is the holy film and the most um, vivifying, the least dense thing is the absolute at the other end of the scale and that's just dispersed across the whole of the universe and particularly dispersed in the spaces between suns and planets where so, it can exist quite happily
0: so one one level that's um I find a bit paradoxical when comparing objective science uh, to contemporary science is you you say two things uh, together, uh, which in contemporary science tends to be either or, and that's that the universe is intelligent at every level and the universe is material at every level. Yeah. So maybe you could unpack that. What the reason you can see why I see that as a paradox, uh, at least for, from the the sense of contemporary science. Well, I, is, actually, the
2: sense of religion, yeah. contemporary religion too, for the most part. It is um, the whole thing is paradoxical in respect of when you think in terms of contemporary science, and of course we've all been educated to do that. So it's kind of in us and therefore it causes us to think in particular ways so we tend um, to think of the word intelligence in a particular way mm. and objective science thinks of that in a com- completely different way you know so it, it's very difficult to try and cross talk between these these two um, spheres so if we talk about life then from the point of view of objective science something is alive if it has a lifetime and it consumes three separate foods you know so it consumes impressions of a kind it consumes air of a kind or uh, and it consumes uh, food of a kind you know and that's the definition of something that's alive Right now the definition of something that's alive in, in scientific terms is completely different um, once you hone in on the idea of a substance everything being material has a lot of consequences everything is a substance including God is a substance and can be weighed and measured you know, And there is no exception to that whatsoever. But science has lots of exceptions to things that can't be weighed and measured. For instance, you know, objective science would say that knowledge is a substance. Science doesn't regard knowledge as a substance. It has no way of explaining knowledge as a substance because it regards it in a different way. So you know, if you say that everything is alive, then saying that something is alive is not a meaningful thing, right? Because everything is. You know, if you say that there's a range of intelligence um, across the universe, then you you are applying it to everything. Everything from the um, from the least to the greatest has intelligence. Science can't do that. Science, you know, uh, modern science doesn't look at things in that way. So you are running into just having this conversation, you're just running into the complete incompatibility of one particular view and another view. They they've got definitions, axioms that are completely different, and they've got methods that are completely different. Everything's different, and and therefore you can't really try and combine them. All you can do is. You know, an awful lot of people have gathered an awful lot of data, um, and they belong to the scientific world, and that data is equally valuable to people that are um, studying objective science. It's nice to know how many galaxies there are.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah that, I think that's an important point, too, um and I say this particularly to people encountering your book who may not have as much familiarity with the Gurdjieff work. Uh, but I think it's also true for people in the Gurdjieff work who have been you know, steeped in the contemporary scientific narrative that to approach your work, you really have to uh, enter into it and learn the language of it anew. And so a word like alive or a word like intelligence uh, or a word like material doesn't mean the same thing as it means in the narrative of contemporary science and that's an important point because if you bring that contemporary science narrative to um objective science you're going to say oh this is gobbledygook this doesn't mean anything but you can't do that (laughs) and and actually well you can do that but that's kind of a mechanical thing to do i mean to to be sincere or authentic you have to be willing to understand what's meant by the terminology that's used
2: yeah the the problem that I met many many times in the Gurdjieff work was that people in groups I would encounter people in groups and some piece of news would have emerged from the media about some scientific discovery or discovery in quotes or whatever and they would believe it, and not only would they believe it, they would try and square that theory with something that Gurdjieff said. And there is no validity to doing that. You can't do that because you're actually talking about two completely different um, uh, ways of understanding things. You, you're talking about completely different systems with different languages.
1: Well, let me let me. Um, um, Put aside contemporary science if we can for a moment and, and just talk about contemporary belief systems that are not um, congruent with or derived from, from objective science. Surely there are a lot of people uh, in the world alive today for whom contemporary science is not their primary narrative, cosmological narrative, to return to our earlier Discussion. So, how does how does objective science differ um, in its cosmological narrative from the cosmological narratives of of the various I'm thinking various forms of Christianity, of uh, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, various uh, uh, shamanic. Uh, manifestations, etc. How uh, how would you articulate the difference there?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, the, the objective science wasn't invented by Gurdjieff. It was brought by Gurdjieff. Mm-hmm. Uh, its origin is believed to have been esoteric Christianity. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there, there's nothing in this that is in any way in conflict with um, the inner... Um, part of Christianity, there may be lots of various sects that believe God knows what, but wouldn 't be very happy with this particular explanation of things yes it's also, <laughs> it's also if I understand correctly it 's also um, compatible entirely with the Sufi tradition, um, mm-hmm. and it has some of its expression, particularly the um, Enneagram comes from the Sufi tradition, I believe, and may not have come from the um uh, yeah. the old let's say Christian um, tradition so there isn't really any problem with 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 those two things if if you're talking about people's belief systems,'re not really talking about science anyway you're just not you know you're talking about something else they have faith in certain kind of constructs in the way that the universe is, that's fine. That's a belief system. You know, these are not belief systems. The objective science is not a belief system.
1: Well, so then you're distinguishing between, say, um, the uh, Catholicism that I was um, uh, exposed to in Catholic parochial school, um, which you would call a belief system, Perhaps influenced by, in some of its forms, by esoteric Christianity, but not, but whose narrative, cosmological narrative, um, is not understood in the same way that objective science would purport to represent a, a cosmological narrative. Is that, is that accurate?
2: Yeah, sure. The the I mean, what happened to the Catholic Church? Um, um uh, it's distinct from what happened to the Orthodox Church, but probably the same kind of um, degeneration happened in in both of those instances. One point mm-hmm. in time, the Catholic Church was telling you what the truth was based upon interpretations of the Vulgate, um, the Latin um, translation of the Bible. I mean, they the reason that Galileo and Copernicus were opposed was that they couldn't find justification for it in the Bible. And that was what they were going to. So what you were taught almost certainly came from the You game. Know, it didn't come from the um, inner part of Christianity. Um, uh, and... You know, the, the Jesuits were um, proclaiming things, you know, decade by decade as to what the truth was. Um, and they behave in the same way that modern science behaves. They're, they're the ones that have got the the power to um, disseminate uh, theories, you know. Well, that's precisely my point, is it
1: is that it seems to me that there's uh, um, less separation from contemporary science and religion um then um you would understand to be the case if what you're calling the esoteric Christian roots of objective science um, would um fit with right so so this so this um so there's religion
0: and religion shall we say yeah, well um, contemporary science has a large religious component for sure.
2: Yeah, that's true.
0: Uh, so, so I want I want to get back to the, the ray of creation and the other foundational notion that uh, ties with the ray of creation is the notion of the law of seven and the law of three and the ray of create the way you described in which the absolute divides itself uh, between affirming and uh, wholly firm, if you will, and the tension in between becomes uh, how the emanation proceeds between them follows a certain kind of uh, pattern. And you describe it as uh, an octave. And I'd like you to say a little bit about the octave here because... This is an idea that I find in the work that uh it's it's both an invitation to struggle with it and to make sense of it, but it's also something that uh I think I see people can give lip service to without really understanding it so I'd like to have you maybe unpack the octave for us in the ray of creation.
2: I'll see what I can do there's something i mean I'm giving a set of seminars on this um Zoom seminar. Um, and one of the things in the first seminar is going to be lining up the Lord's Prayer with the Ray of Creation because it lines up precisely mm. and it's an interesting thing that that's the case um, it, if you like it supports the idea that um, as regards objective science um, the at the very basis of Christianity Christ um, knew about this hmm. and in one way or another used it. Um but anyway. The idea of an octave is it goes from do to do that so do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do. The two does resonate with each other. You could call it harmonics in music if you like, where something resonates with. It. So do is the beginning, but if you're going to understand octaves you need to understand that there are specifically two kinds of octave. One is what you would call the creative octave, and the creative octave descends. So an example of a creative octave is that you've been sitting around for a while and you've decided that you want to build a house. So it begins with a concept In in one way or another, you need to go forward um, to design. You know, and after design, you probably need perhaps to do some kind of testing and so on and so forth. Um, You need to start to implement, buy the land, get people to um, get the materials together, work and get the materials together, and you build the house and um, and you plan out the garden, and the house is built. So you started with a concept, and you ended up with something very solid in the world. So the the dough that you started out with was the idea to build a house, and the dough that you finish up with is a house, and they resonate with each other. So those notes, but the notes are all distinct. Now, there are, because of the nature of the octave, because of the vibrations of the notes, which are, if you like, um, it it's, uh, was determined in the creation of the universe, really. Those notes have specific vibrations, and the note C to the note Do corresponds to the notes on a piano. That do not have a black note between them, they do not have a semi between them. And the notes between me and fa, again on the piano and the me fa, there is no black note between them. So they, there is a slowing down of the increase in vibrations between those notes. The effect of that is to cause an interval, in other words, it's an interruption so the difference between having an idea and starting to do it you'll probably, people if they think to themselves will realise that they've had a thousand ideas in their lives that they never pursued you know, thought, this is a good idea let's go to, you know, Italy for a holiday this year but then they don't, you know and, and it never got past the initial interval and there's another interval between Niva which is what tends to um, interfere with the uh, the final production of something you will often discover in your life that there are things you just never finished, and those things were stopped at the Miphar interval <laughs> that's the way down described in a very brief way the way up the, the best thing to think about in terms of uh, an octave that's ascending you see, the, the the descending octave is taking something with um, a high vibration and manifesting at a level of a lower vibration. Uh, a good example of an octave um, that's ascending is the idea of learning something. So you start out at the age of, I don't know, maybe even the age of six or eight or something, Because your father wants you to be a great tennis player. And you learn to play tennis. And you go through... um, Do, Re, Mi. And you get to me, And that is the point where... All potential... That never gets realised stops. So, you know, the note Do is... Becoming interested in tennis. And the note Re... Is actually learning to play tennis, you know, uh, dif- finding out the information but also getting your body. Um, and the note me is called difficulties, right? And the best way to understand that is you've got so far, you know how to play tennis, you know how to serve, you know how to knock a ball back and forth, but you realize that you are going to have to raise the game for you to be a real tennis player that has some possibilities. And that's the MIFAR interval. And that's where most people in their lives reach a point where they just give up on something, and they give up because of the MIFAR interval. What will normally take you past that is someone that will help. You know, so good tennis players get a coach, and the coach takes them to a point where they are, you know, they become reasonably exceptional in terms of what they do. And the rest of the octave proceeds from there. So that that interval is what stops most people. Um the other you know, to become a great tennis champion you would have got to the note C, you wouldn't have um you wouldn't have gone any further than that. You wouldn't get to the final note Do. Um, because nobody does because that would be some kind of um uh, it'd be some kind of transformation through tennis where you in some way or other had raised your um, spiritual level by playing tennis. Maybe a zen of tennis would take you there. You know, it really you know. So that's the, the october ascending And and the whole point of objective or so or point that objective science makes is this isn't something that sometimes happens this is the only way that anything ever happens the whole universe was created with this octave and it's there in all small things and all large things I and mean, if you uh, are listening to this and you had the thought that you know this ray of creation that goes all the way down to the moon and even to the centre of moons doesn't seem to involve any people The answer to that, or the explanation for that, is no. We don't belong to the ray of creation. We belong to a a lesser octave that just comes down from the sun. Um, And that's what half of the book that I wrote is about, is the side octave from the sun. Which is life as we understand it, starting with the centre of our planet and going as high as the sun and and pursuing that and that's an octave you know and the reason for the existence of um, life on earth is it fills the interval between me and far in the ray of creation so the, the notes far, sol and la in the side octave they are the notes that fill the main octave and that's why we exist
0: and that interval is the interval uh, in the ray of creation between the the planets of the solar system and the Earth, yep. And so, in the the way you're describing it, then for influence to continue down for uh, for the creative act to continue in its way from the planets to the Earth and then to the Moon, there some because of this interval. Something has to uh, be inserted in that interval, if you will, or some, some, something uh, has to be present to allow that transmission of influence or that transmission of energy, and that's what organic life is on the earth.
2: Yeah, that, that's the way, but it's, it's slightly more involved than that, but not that much more involved. It's this ray of creation comes down, but it also comes up, right? So from you know the the lowest no, in the ray of creation there is a rising up through the levels of the moon and the levels of the earth and it's the meeting of the rising potential and the falling potential it's that meeting that um, organic life on earth fills that interval that's our place
0: so what is the um if you you brought the question of man's role um what function does man play in this uh, uh, cosmology that couldn't be filled by uh, plants or uh, perhaps invertebrates? Or the or yeah, even. or uh, birds and animals. There's a there's a
2: kind of intelligence gap, really. You know, I mean, as soon as you start talking about this, you, you've got to. You know, it becomes very involved and it it, it it becomes involved because it's not just you know um, plants and animals and men that are filling this gap It it's that whole octave is filling that gap so this is where it was necessary in the book to introduce earth water found air the um Uh, a quarter of that side octave consists of things of earth and um, about a quarter of it consists of things of water and about a quarter of it consists of things of air and uh, the last quarter of it consists of things of fire and those old if you like well it's actually Greek division of elements into four different types it applies to this octane so there's a certain kind of life of solid things which is from rocks um, all the way down to the centre of the earth and then there's a certain life from the erosion of rocks the creation of soil the use of plants by soil and um, primitive, relatively primitive one-brained life forms form the second layer and the third layer uh, is the one-brained life forms to animals which are effectively two brains to man that has three brains and therefore has an intellectual centre um, and he belongs to the air, but he's also part of the fourth piece, which is defined in 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 the book and by Gurdjieff as consisting of man, angels, and archangels. But you're better to think of them if those words offend you. It's better to think of them as beings made of plasma, um, because fire is actually the name that they used to have that we now use the word plasma. Yeah, this well, is, yeah so
1: maybe you can elaborate this, um, your view of plasma, which I think is in many ways one of the key things yeah, that you I bring mean, out in the book.
0: For anyone listening, I would say a unique contribution of this book is the articulation of plasma and right. the centrality of that um, as a bridge between what we... The data we have from natural, you know, from contemporary science and the worldview of this cosmology. So, yeah, if you could talk about your journey with plasma and, <laughs> as it were. I want to hear about that. <laughs> Robin's
2: journey with plasma. <laughs> there, the, there was a conversation I had a long time ago, it was about 10 years ago with um, someone, and um, we were discussing, and it was in a very casual way, but we were discussing um, the existence or non-existence of um, higher realms, and I said, and I actually said without even thinking about it, so it was an idea that just came through me, if you mind, that really it all comes down to the question of whether there's form in the plasma. And this is an interesting question: whether there is form in plasma. And um, we we think of solid things as having a lot of form, like you know, um, and form that's difficult to change because you know you'd have to chip away at a stone to to change the form of a stone.
1: Let me just interject for a second. By form here, do you essentially mean structure? Yeah. In, in another word.
0: Yeah,
2: so you know, so stem's got a structure but it's very solid. Um, liquid has a structure less solid but still has surface tension and form shapes, you know. Air doesn't really have that much of a structure, although you have to say that air can do things like form tornadoes and so on and so forth. It seems looser, right? And then you come to plasma and you think, Well, maybe plasma doesn't have any form you know, it's what we think of as electricity but also what we think of as fire is plasma, right and the question is, is the form in plasma, and that's a question that's being answered um, in one area of science by basically it started with a Norwegian called Birkland that discovered Birkland currents and there is indeed form in plasma and in fact there's more form in plasma than there is in um, uh, what we would call air or gaseous material plasma is ionic material it's been, it's, it's been separated into positive and negative ions and if you just take heat and apply it to a solid it eventually becomes liquid apply more heat the liquid will eventually become air gaseous apply more heat, and what will actually happen is it will become ionic.
0: You know? But you also, I, but I, but you, I want to be fair that you extend this to ionic forms of long-chain molecules in um, uh, biological systems. Uh, the membranes that separate inside from outside have this uh, uh, polarizing structure, right? And in and, and, by your understanding of plasma, that's a plasma-like structure.
2: It is indeed plasma. The thing is that if you actually examine anything that's alive, you discover that it's got all four parts in it. And that's true when you go down under the ground. If you actually uh, observe the behavior of um, uh, molten rock or even half-molten rock, you discover that it has you know, it's solid with liquids and gases and plasma in it you know, it's just the proportions are different um, and so is everything that we know that's alive, so the question really is if there are things called angels and archangels that we cannot see they must have a form so the question is you know, what is, what are these forms in plasma, well Uh, a Norwegian called Birkland discovered um, what are called Birkland currents which are currents that go from suns to planets and from um, galaxies to suns and from galaxies to galaxies and they're a twisted pair and there's what's called a double layer of positive and negative um, ions that surround the outside of this and then the envelope, the Earth's magnetosphere, is surrounded by a double layer of plasma. It has a structure. And the sun itself, the heliosphere, which is the extent of the sun, is surrounded by a double layer of plasma. So there is form at the very large scale there's form in plasma. And we must assume because in one way or another um if you if you take a body that's dying and you just observe it let's say from a point of view of scientific um, it loses its plasma it loses its energy um, that animated it and that would be the energy of the instinctive centre and a really strange thing happens when something dies all sorts of um, you know small biological microbes that used to be symbiotes that kept you alive and served you turn on you and start devouring you or devouring what's left of your body and this is because the plasma's gone and whatever form that plasma gave to your body is gone Um, uh, and I don't know, it's gone to the sky in fact, it's another thing that it's worth noting that all moons are anodes in relation to the planets they surround, which act as cathodes in respect of the moon, but the planet itself is an anode in respect of the sun, which acts as a cathode in relation to the planet, and the sun is itself an anode in relation to the galaxy, or in relation to some higher um, Uh, influx of plasma so you know this kind of thing so when someone dies whatever is leaving their body naturally floats up it's negatively charged it naturally floats to the sky which is positively charged so it moves up so and there's something of form that left the body but we don't really know uh, we don't really have much more information about that um I mean there are theories in objective science as to what happens with that but that's not, there anything that you can confirm that with the problem with science above and beyond anything else is that in order to understand certain things about plasma you have to personally experience them and that means that they can never be a part of a scientific experiment they can only be part of what you would call an alchemist experiment where you are the crucible and you discover things from within yourself. And that's where science and objective science completely part company because objective science says that we as individuals can know things through our experience, but science will only accept truth as an outcome of experimentation that's consensus-based.
1: Thank you. That was a wonderful explanation, and and very uh, um, articulate. And it uh, reminds me of the question I had. I, I continue to have had when reading the book um, is that why science? Why use that word, science? Objective science? What's purpose? Does it serve? Do you think to call it objective science versus Um, the uh, contemporary science that you just were pointing to well
2: this is this has got to do with the work and it's got a lot to do with uh, a a completely other aspect of the work which is how we use words Mm -hmm. so you know there are are two different ways of understanding words or uh, reaching the meaning of words one way is through associations that you've gathered since you were young and the meaning that you apply to a given word will be based upon some kind of automatic act- activity within you that when the word is spoken assigns a meaning to it or a taste to it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another form of language where all words are related to each other relatively now if you understand um, if you understand language in the way that computers handle it then computers have ontologies and the ontologies relate all words to all other words so that things cannot be misunderstood by the computer right? and therefore it can analyse things well, the language of the work is also exactly a language like that where every word is relative and it, it it relates its meaning to other words the the way that the the work treats words is it it determines the meaning of a word etymologically from when it was first invented well you know the word science means knowing things it comes from schiosari the Latin to know you know so. But we use the term science because that's the correct word.
1: Well, well, uh, you could create another word well, from, that, from a Greek root, surely, as well. well.
0: I, that's, uh, that's That was my question. This is why I like the term, or you have used the term mystical positivism. <laughs> uh, not, and I don't mean that as a joke. I mean, it, it, it literally is a very specific choice to describe Particularly what you just were speaking about uh, um, about the necessity to gain knowledge empirically through your first person experience that you that you have that you have to first you you have to accept the validity of that which contemporary science does not because it 's not a controlled experiment right. and second uh, when you do that there's still a deductive and verifying process going on such that what one understands is harmonious with your experience as opposed to a projection.
2: Yes. Look, in in terms of the term objective science, I didn't invent it. Gurdjieff invented it. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're not in the the business of revision. We we presume that that wasn't made in error. And we presume... Of the other things that he said were not made were not said in error. I think certainly anything that is said or written in Beelzebub's tales was so meticulously put together that it's quite clear that those are the words that he thought were appropriate. Well, he's smarter than I will ever be, so you know. Um, I'm not changing those words, it's called objective science because that's what he called it.
0: Got it. So going back to the uh. Being beings in plasma. Um, one thing I found interesting in um, it, and I, we won't go into too much detail here because we don't have time, but uh, we have the ray of creation. We have a side octave, which is the uh, octave from the sun. And then there's another side octave, which describes the uh, hierarchies of beings in plasma. And it's not just the angels and the archangels uh that are described as plasma beings, which in the context that you were describing might inhabit the uh uh the plasma spheres surrounding the earth or the the, the sun in the solar system, but there's also room for plasma beings that are part of the earth that uh uh maybe Involved in various processes of the ray of creation on the earth, but they're beings that, in uh, uh, other systems, are known as elementals, uh, divas. Uh, they're the the uh, plasma. D- davis Devas not divas. Devas thank you. <laughs> D- divas <laughs> is a different uh, creation. <laughs>
1: Also divine, of course. Also divine,
0: yes. (laughs) But uh, can you speak about that a little bit? Because uh, it's not just uh, angels and archangels. There's other plasma beingness that uh, this model and this this description actually uh, uh, points to.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the most tensive thing that I put in the book, by the way. If there was any part of it where I was just kind of like, well, this is the best I can do rather than being really certain about what I was talking about. It was that. But let's begin with, because in order to actually rationally explain this, um, we need to um, touch on the idea of what Gurdjieff called the trogo-auto-ego craft, which is the idea that the universe is governed, is ruled, uh, operates. The universe operates by eating itself. That is, that all parts of the universe, with the exception of the Absolute, and possibly elements of the Sun Absolute, um, have a place in an octave where they feed on things and are fed on. It's true of human beings, but it's true of animals, it's true of plants, it's true of rocks, it's true of everything at that kind of level it's true of planets it's true of moons it's true of suns and so on and so forth they eat and are eaten so when you actually look at that from a logical point of view that means that there are substances and beings rising up the ray of creation and other ones coming down the ray of creation and every note in every octave must be filled, and it has to be filled because stuff is being created, and if there wasn't something to consume it, it would start piling up somewhere right <laughs> and the idea of the um of the or to ecocrat and the idea of the of creation is it's in balance it's a ladder going up and a ladder going down, and therefore there are places everywhere. For beings of various sorts with certain functions, they eat, they breathe, they perceive, you know. And and that means that we have to explain in some way or other what the higher parts or the higher helpers for the lower parts of um, the planet are, you know, the kernel of the earth plus the layer of metals plus the layer of minerals plus the plants plus collective um, life forms like whole forests Um, all of those in some way or other probably have some kind of helper that in some way or other has the job and feeds on them you know Mm -hmm. has the job of looking after them like a shepherd, but also feeds on them, just as a shepherd might slaughter a lamb and have it for tea, you know. Um, so that octave is presented as a possibility in terms of plasma beings. That therefore there must be these beings at various levels, and the ones that are relative to man and are uh, given the name angels and archangels the word angel means messenger and you would think that all the other, in one way or another, all of the other plasma beings are also messengers in a way, they are aids to the intelligence of a life form that they cover now the reason for including that and the reason for actually making a point of this was the evolution of birds in New Zealand which is just the best example of the idea of evolution applying not to individual um, living species but to a whole ecosystem they discovered that you know New Zealand never had any land animals Um, it had only birds It, it broke off They estimate I don't know Five million, six million, that many years ago, from um, the landmass it was attached to, and it became, it, be, it became occupied entirely by birds. But every single requirement in the environment, from the lowest level of bacteria all the way to the largest bird that existed. I think there was one that was 12 feet tall. it was all filled evolution had created a place where in Australia it created the same place of marsupials and in you know Asia and Europe and North America and South America it filled it with mammals you know the same thing was going on and this is the nature of the not just nature of evolution it's the nature of the universe there is a place it will be filled by something living because that 's what the universe does, and if it didn 't do that, things would start piling up in places
1: so um, that makes um, sense in terms of th- piling up in places. Um, I understand that so you don 't get into this in the book, um, but my teacher used to say that uh, one of the things uh, one of the goals of spiritual practice was to is to um, Make oneself attractive to be eaten at or after death by something higher. So, um, if that—if we understand that uh, the point of materiality that you're talking about, let's say that one um, is successful um, in effectively constructing a body kesjan, a term that. Our listeners will not be familiar with, but, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but what, how does, how, what eats the body, Kezjan, in your, in your system?
2: You can call it an astral body if you want. You know? Okay, okay. The, um, the astral body would be food for angels. Right. That makes sense. You know it's um and it, it's emotional angels are emotional, or angels are reputed to emotional mm-hmm. um, according to I suppose you would say myth or legend or religious sources, so yeah, and reason would be consumed by archangels, the body of reason would be consumed by archangels, but you know I don't see it you see the word eating is a bit you know. Uh, I don't necessarily see it as being eaten in the sense of being um, reduced to your basic atoms and consumed bit by bit. I see it more in terms of composite beings, mm-hmm. like, you know, and beehives, yeah. and, you know, you become a part of.
1: Right. But that's and, about, about it. But in the Trogo Auto Ego Crat. Formulation that you're using before it is eating, and 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 I'm glad you made this distinction. It doesn't have to be uh, that there are actually two ways of being incorporated into another being. Essentially, is what you're saying here.
2: Yeah, there is, and it's important. If we if we discuss the way we eat in the normal way, then the way that what we eat, whether we're talking about normal food or breathing um, air in or taking in impressions, is it always begins with the deconstruction of what we absorbed. It's deconstructed first and then it's raised up. So that's one form of eating and what I'm saying is you didn't know you were but you are part of an organism called mankind. Mm -hmm. And while you're alive, you are a part of that organism. And you may think in in one way or another that you are living some kind of independent life, but you're not. You are inevitably a part of that vast uh, organism with seven or eight billion cells, and you're just one of them. And I've always... You know, the only thing that I ever go back to with it is something that Kurt Bonnegut wrote, which I just... It just kind of seemed completely right to me. Um, uh, and therefore I use it occasionally, which is... It's a little story that occurs in one of his novels because he used to put in these vignettes, you know? Yes. The two particles of yeast are having a conversation about the meaning of existence, and they discuss... <coughs> Everything in the sphere of science and everything in the sphere of philosophy and everything in the sphere of religion and all sorts of artistic approaches to it, and they have a long conversation. But neither of them ever comes to the conclusion that what they are doing is they're making champagne. <laughs> right. I remember that story. <laughs>
1: I read through all of Vonnegut's novels at one point. <laughs>
2: And that's correct in, in the sense of we don't, you know, we are serving mankind in some way or other. We do not know how, but mankind certainly isn't me. It's a collection of things of which I'm a part, you know. And there is probably on the death. I mean, Gurdjieff, it's interesting that Gurdjieff uses the term Raskarno for death in to tale because Raskarno doesn't mean the complete destruction of something. It means a splitting up into parts of something. Mm-hmm. And you know, at death the idea is the Gurdjieffian idea is that part of you goes somewhere else and becomes part of something else. So if there's a living camp, uh you know, composite being called mankind, there might be another kind of composite being called mankind at a higher level that we can become part of. I don't know. I mean here it's just complete speculation um, we don't know, but we do know the kinds of processes that go on and we, It's definitely the case that something on oh, my opinion you know i've been there when people die it's it, it definitely the case that something leaves the body
0: yes,
1: yeah, I can definitely confirm that in my experience in personal experience but um you're make you're reminding me of a uh a, a science fiction novel from the sixties by this author, Roger Zelazny, um, called Lord of Light, where uh, one of the principal characters is is actually um, has, has lived a human life and then is, is sort of circling the planet um, where he had his human life, basically in, in what I can now uh, retrogressively say would have been his, his, a plasma form and then he gets reincarnated again that's the and that's the substance of the book but um but i'd always uh, thought that that was a, a a reference to hindu mythology except it had this feature um, that resembles the uh, uh, your articulation of of how how plasma circulates around around planets and moons and stuff like that so it's just a, it was just a, it's just a funny uh um notion of how uh, artists can sometimes um end up saying things that uh um only later you come to appreciate.
2: Like yeah, Vonnegut. I well yeah, I, I I mean I think Vonnegut had come across work because some of it, you know, the Getith work because some of the things that he said seemed to me like to be derivative. But other people, they, I think that there's uh, some kind of um, set of uh, wavelength. you call it wavelengths, what ideas come to you and you don't really know where they came from. And I think that happens with writers particularly. I think they naturally channel such influences. Mm. And therefore, it, he may have thought it was his idea, but it wasn't. It was somebody, some other thought from somewhere else. Sure. As to him, by who knows what you know, it could have been an angel. It doesn't really matter what. It just, has to him, just like you described your
1: conversation ten years ago with uh, someone, and you had a thought about
0: forms in plasma.
2: Yeah, and that that was just an an interesting thing. It's not the first time it's happened to me in my life. It's mm-hmm. it's not a common event. But you know, something will come out of my mouth, and something inside me will say well, who the hell said that? Yeah. Because I know it wasn't me. You know you know, you kind of, if you're having a conversation, you know the thread that is following.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? And, and you know that the associations that come in to build the conversation or the words that come out of your mouth, there's something that happens. What I've always been, in, in a way, really impressed with or bewildered by is that there's something that goes on before the words come out of your mouth.
1: Yeah yes uh, and and how that happens differs depending on whether you're acting mechanically um or if you have or are subjecting yourself to or engaging with a kind of training of attention yeah. um that makes yeah. something else possible so um but that leads me to ask uh, there was a question that came up for me do we have time
0: Time uh, for we're it? getting
1: well, I wanted to know. Uh, you said that uh, eating involves breaking things down. So, when one eats impressions, what is that process? How would you describe that process? What, what is broken and what uh, is, raised. is raised?
2: Well, the, the receipt of impressions falls upon what in the work we would call the formatory apparatus. And if the formatory apparatus is acting, um in a disciplined manner, then it will send send impressions to all of the three centers that matter the thinking the emotional and the moving center hmm. you know and and they will um process this separately let's in. Well, you know, okay. it's almost you know carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Some of it gets this, some of it gets that, some of it gets the other, and then those things might be might choose to act. You know, and if they do, then in, if the human being is performing according to way it was intended to perform, the thinking center will direct the moving center to do something and the emotional center will fall in line and provide the necessary energy. And that's if you react, but it, maybe there's nothing to be done. Well,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the, the formulation that, that I had from, from my teacher was that the formatory apparatus has to be uh, gotten out of the way, as it were, but it might be a slightly just a different way of saying... The mechanical reactive, I mean... Right, the mechanical formatory apparatus... And and yeah, then yeah. and then the impressions naturally right. um, are absorbed by uh, the different centers.
0: So so we're getting uh, yeah. close. Okay. We're good. Yeah, we're getting. Uh, we're... I was just gonna say, uh, say, say something. Say it. Say <laughs> it.
2: I, I was just going to say the the formatory apparatus. There is a specific part of the brain where the stuff lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's then a. It then becomes a conversation as to what one means by formatory apparatus. Yes. But, you know, there is something that directs the information from there. Got it.
0: So, yeah, we just have about five minutes left here, so I I wanted to um, close with an observation and then a question. And the observation is that, you know, uh, Pache the conversation or the discussion about yeast not knowing that they're making champagne uh we serve a per by being human beings we serve a purpose that uh in nature and yet you also describe the possibility when we do intentional work that uh there's a different there's a different possibility than simply being uh yeast making champagne as it were, and in that sense. Without really going into detail about that now, we'll have to save that for another conversation. I just want to emphasize that this book is very hopeful for someone reading it, that there's a, uh, and I don't mean that as a joke. I mean, it's just like, it's inspirational in that sense, that it gives a reason or a larger context in which we can do the work that we do. But the question I wanted to ask is, this is volume one. (laughs) There is uh, uh, a number of questions you raise at the end. So I'm interested both in your plans for volume two and the seminar series that you're doing, uh, because I'd like to, you know, put links for that when we publish the uh, podcast for people to find out more about this uh, ongoing conversation.
2: Okay, so I'll deal with the second volume. The, the thing that was not dealt with in any detail in the first volume is the food diagram and the food diagram is a little like the step diagram in the sense that it has many many ramifications and there's an awful lot of information that can be brought to it but there's also the necessity to explain the creation itself which I kind of vaguely explained at the beginning of this but um to explain in more detail using the information in Beelzebub's tales, purgatory so I want to go into that, the food diagram the enneagram, death the six processes Um, and um, uh, it's difficult to know where it leads because when you just start, you know I started the first book with a set of things to do and I ended up doing, you know twice as much and going in different directions. (coughs) So um, I have no idea exactly how it will turn out but it will begin with the description of a creation. As regards a seminar series, a seminar series is for people who either find difficulty in reading books and therefore would rather have it you know, rather have it presented to them, or who've read the book and would rather, would like to talk about it, so we're doing topic by topic half an hour of presentation at most 60 minutes Q&A let's talk about the Ray of Creation, let's talk about the Octave let's talk about the of 3, let's talk about the side Octave from the Sun, let's just discuss these things and anyone can ask any question and um, we'll see how that goes so that's that's starting in about three weeks' time.
0: Okay. Well, this has been... A- well,
1: I, I, I do want to interject a comment here that, that I found um, reading uh, the book to be a very useful thing for me uh, because uh, it forced me to think about things in ways that I hadn't thought about them. So um, whether or not... Wherever one is coming from, I suspect it would have a similar effect on on a lot of people, and that's a thing I wouldn't say about a lot of books, at least in the way that it that it did uh, for me. So take that as an endorsement or a warning, whatever, wherever you
0: want. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate uh, you taking the time to. Uh... Uh, discuss this with us and we look forward to more conversations around this topic because it's very, very ab- much so. Absolutely fascinating. We just really just skimmed the the very surface layer. Um, uh, but uh, I think that uh, we gave, uh, you know, a, a fair insight into what the reader has uh, well, waiting for them when they approach. And, and what
1: arises yeah. in, in, in our responses to it.
0: Yeah. So thank you.
1: Thanks. That's
0: Pleasure. Always enjoy chatting with you guys. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Robin Bloor about his latest book, Gurdjieff's Hydrogens, Volume 1, The Ray of Creation. About the book, he writes, Gurdjieff clearly wanted his pupils to try to understand objective science. He left two accounts of it. One adorns the pages of In Search of the Miraculous, The other merges itself into the text of Beelzebub's tales to his grandson. He describes its study as a necessity, one of the five Oboglnian strivings. And yet, most books about the work steer clear of the topic. This book moves in the opposite direction. In two weeks on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Fiona Denzi, a retired media executive and long-time practitioner and teacher of the Gurdjieff movements. Affiliated with the Gurdjieff Foundation of Toronto, Fiona will discuss this unique form of sacred dance that figures centrally in the Fourth Way tradition. According to the Foundation of Toronto's website, in the early years of his search, Gurdjieff spent time in various hidden monasteries and temples in Central Asia, where he experienced ritual dances and ceremonies. In studying their essential structure, he came to the understanding that these dances were being used as a language to express knowledge of a cosmic order. This language is a very exact one. Everything in it is measured. Every movement has its right place, duration, and weight. Combinations and sequences are mathematically calculated. Positions are arranged to produce definite, predetermined emotions or states. In the creation of such movements, every small element matters. Each detail has meaning. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is the result of mere imagination there is only one possible gesture attitude and rhythm to represent a given human or cosmic situation another gesture another movement would strike a false note would not produce the impression of truth should there be the slightest miscalculation in the composition the truth is altered the dance desecrated and fantasy has taken the place of knowledge in a lifetime devoted to study and questioning Gurdjieff mastered the principles of this art and was able, in his turn, to use the movements as a vehicle for the transmission of his understanding. Join us for that show on Saturday, June 26th at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.